Blog Talk Radio. Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Hey, how do you like that new music? Uh, <laughs> it's such a big improvement for me over listening to some of my old stuff that I have been wanting to get rid of for a couple of years. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so today is uh, April 7th, 2020. We'll never forget this uh, time in history ever again with this uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, not fun. Um, so today we are going to bring in somebody from the middle of the country. We're going to talk to Larry. Uh, Larry is a licensed psychologist and attorney. He obtained his Doctor of Psychology in 1981 and his uh, law degree in 1992. As a psychologist, Larry's practice focused on the behavioral aspects of chronic pain syndromes. He was the clinical director of several multidisciplinary chronic pain rehabilitation programs uh, back in the 1980s. These programs addressed the disability-related behaviors and the opioid and sedative dependence that impacted chronic pain syndromes. As an attorney, his focus was on medical negligence claims. He represented a number of families who lost loved ones as a result of accidental overdoses of prescription opioid medications. Uh, really interesting background you have, Larry. Um, so we're going to discuss uh, pilots who are uh, coming to me in large numbers and what's going on with that. The FAA just made it a requirement that all pilots in the HIMSS program will be forced to go to AA meetings for life of their flying. And um, also, just for you to know, they not only are forced to go there, but they have to believe and talk the ideology or they will get sort of um, sniffed out by the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous members who run HIMSS, which stands for the Human Intervention Motivational Study, which doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's not any kind of um, high-end program. It was created in the 1970s by uh, a bunch of crackpot AA members. Sorry, <laughs> pilots, but... Uh, with no further ado, let's bring on Larry. Can you hear me? Hi, Larry. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, multitasking, so I have my laptop open and I have a headset on. You can hear me okay? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, great. great, great. great. I also have mm-hmm. my phone next to me, so I want to be able to, to watch the comments as they might come up. So, 
uh, I will tell you a bit about me and my story. And, and I uh, asked you to introduce me just as Larry, not because I'm afraid of anybody knowing who I am, but it's sort of right. consistent with, um, with the experience of those who, who uh, speak out uh, when they are exposed to the program and begin to have concerns. Uh, mm-hmm. I recall um, when I first began questioning what was going on, and I'll tell you my whole story, uh, fortunately, the Internet existed. It was a while ago, but not that long ago. And right. when I started Googling uh, issues related to AA, the first thing, one of the first things I came across was something called the Orange Papers, which is a, a website that's got a wealth of information uh, about AA and uh, right. all of its right. warts. And, uh, and it's called the Orange Papers because the person who put that website together uh, did it under a pseudonym, Agent, Agent Orange. And the reason for that is because when you do become critical, you tend to become a target. So uh, anybody who has an interest in knowing who I am, I'm sure can figure it out. But I decided to just be Larry today just to illustrate that issue. So um, let me back up uh, and why I got interested in all of these issues. Um, I uh, started, as, as you said, as my career as a psychologist. And in reflecting now that I've gone through all of these experiences on my original training as a psychologist, I, I kind of remember now that uh, when issues came up uh, when I was in my practica uh, learning about various therapeutic interventions, um, a number of supervisors essentially saying to me, if somebody comes to you and it's clear that they've got a problem with alcohol or substance abuse, they're probably not ready for therapy. And the thing you should do is make sure that problem is addressed first uh, before you engage with them. Well, how, how was that problem addressed? Uh, all I knew about and all I, I, I ever heard about was uh, send them to AA. And I never really knew much about it. Um, right. So that was the, the beginning of my life in, in the mental health professions. And then I did touch on issues related to substance abuse with a specific population, uh, as you described, and those were chronic pain patients who even in the 80s uh, had issues with opioid dependence. However, they're, they're really a different, that's a different kind of problem because the dependence on sedatives and narcotics came as a result of iatrogenic, which is a long word for meaning caused by the intervention. So these people's exposure is because they are inappropriately overprescribed for chronic pain problems. They mm-hmm. develop a dependence, and uh, there are treatment programs that are targeted to that population. Um, one of the things I became concerned about later is that these people now tend to get lumped in with everybody else, and sending somebody who has an iatrogenic problem with opioids, for example, to a 12-step program makes absolutely no sense, less sense than it does for anybody else that gets sent there, frankly. Um, but perhaps we'll talk about that later. But that's just by way of background. I then um, left uh, my psychology practice and uh, went to law school. Uh, and through that experience, began, began litigating opioid overdose claims, as you've discussed. Now, my personal involvement with this came uh, when I was in my early 50s, when um, I was engaged in some very inappropriate behavior, and uh, it resulted in an arrest for drug possession. Um, that uh, triggered my first exposure to uh, anything related to 12-step treatment. And, and the reason it did was because I was advised uh, by many colleagues um, when I was winding my way through the system, the result of the, the legal issue was going to be and wound up being um, a, a diversion program that resulted ultimately in an expungement of my record. I had no criminal convictions. But I was told that uh, in the event that there's any issues with the disciplinary process or anything like that related to your, your law degree, you should be involved with the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program, which is this wonderful voluntary program that's there to help 
lawyers that have issues with substance abuse or mental health issues. Um, well, I, I'm not sh- I wasn't sure at the time I was willing to call myself an addict uh, because mm-hmm. I'd had this uh, I- I- event happen in my life. But if they were there to help me, I was, I was happy to take advantage of the help. So um, when I got involved with the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program, I was initially presented with their contract for their, quote, voluntary program. And all it consisted of basically was that I would attend 90 Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in 90 days. I would have a sponsor. I would read the big book. Um, I didn't know what it was at the time. Uh, and I would engage in all the activities that uh, they recommended. Um, the people that ran the Ohio Letters Assistance Program, much like all of these programs are going to be discussing, uh, are um, steppers. These are people whose qualification for the positions they hold is that they've been through this program themselves and have um, – and drank the Kool-Aid. I guess that's, that's not a very nice way of saying it, but they, they are, are bought into what it is that Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous is offering them or 12-step treatment. So um, I had a reasonably open mind about the whole thing. As I said, I'd never really been exposed. And I started going to my 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, it didn't take long for me to become very uncomfortable with what I saw going on in the room. First of all, the fact that I had to sit there and say, you know, my name is Larry and I'm an alcoholic. That fundamentally gave me a problem because I had never had an issue with alcohol. In fact, I never had an issue with any substances in my life uh, other than a severe consequence of one particular substance when I was in my early 50s. So acknowledging that I was an alcoholic didn't feel right to me. And then the rest of the steps gave me even more problems. I am powerless. Now, that was a concept that I never really had an easy time accepting. Uh, I recognized that, you know, I engaged in behavior. There were reasons I did. I needed to look at them. But was I powerless? No, that didn't make any sense to me either. And the rest of the steps were, uh, were really no different in terms of uh, my exposure to them. And I wasn't just uncomfortable with the, the dogma of the program and the fact that I didn't see it as applying to me. I was uncomfortable with what I saw going on in the rooms. Um, I saw a lot of uh, old-timers, old-timers, men, um, acting in a predatory way towards young, attractive women in the groups. It was something you could just watch happen. Some young, vulnerable woman would wander into a meeting, and uh, she would be uh, harassed by any number of old parts um, looking to get her number and uh, trying to saddle up to her. That's uh, something you know very a lot about, having done the 13th step. Uh, right. So that was one thing. The other thing was, Sponsorship. I, I saw a lot of abuses. Uh, this whole notion that you are going to put your hand, uh, your life in the hands of some person whose qualification for quote sponsoring you is a function of how many years they've been attending meetings and uh, what they say about how long they've been sober. Um, there's, there's reasons often to doubt people when they when they tell you their sobriety dates or their years of sobriety, but that's a whole other story. So there was nothing about what I was experiencing that, that okay. felt right to me. And um, I made the perhaps unwise decision, many people would say, of not simply going along to get along and pushing back. So mm-hmm. it started with me getting on Google, which existed. And I wanted to see Google questions like, because it felt kind of cult-like, uh, people talking in slogans, um, mm-hmm. And over-dependence on the, on, the, on the meetings themselves. And so I would Google things like, is AA a cult? And mm-hmm. certainly there's plenty of literature out there that suggested it was. And then I would Google things like effectiveness of AA, and I would come up against the orange papers. And I learned that 
AA was certainly not the only approach to treating alcohol or substance abuse, that there were a host of other interventions, and that there was plenty of literature out there to suggest that AA ranked far down the list in terms of its effectiveness. So armed with all of that, I thought, well, geez, if I tell these people that run this Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program that I was uncomfortable going to meetings, could I do something else? They wouldn't give me any problem at all. Well, nothing could have been further than the truth. So by pushing back against it, um, I suffered some fairly significant consequences. Um, As a voluntary um, program, the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program was there really to advocate for lawyers if they were facing some sort of discipline. Um, And how it would come up is um, anybody who got into any kind of trouble with regard to their law license, for example, you embezzled funds from your, the trust fund that belonged to clients or engaged in any other any number of other inappropriate behaviors as a lawyer or unethical conduct. Um, if you got involved with the Higher Lawyers Assistance Program, you could use uh, the fact that you suffered from the disease of alcoholism or substance abuse as a mitigating factor, and they would tend to reduce your discipline. Uh, for me, unfortunately, things oh. swung the other direction. So if you were to look at my um, the records on my disciplinary process, and this goes back, uh, well, it was over uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Um, it, I wound up getting a, my law license suspended for six months because, quote, I was in denial. Um, Whoa. Fortunately, the only thing I got, <laughs> yeah, it's right in the opinion. So, oh, my God. <laughs> fortunately, I, I, after my uh, six months of uh, license suspension, I was reinstated. Uh, yeah. And the only bone that was thrown to me in the reinstatement order, because I yelled so loud and so long about being involved in 12-step treatment, is they said that I was not required to continue to be involved in any way with any sort of 12-step treatment after my license was reinstated, that I did have to go through a period of monitoring where I would do some random drug screens, and that would be administered by the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program. Well, they, are already, they were already unhappy with me, so when I tried to... Um, get back to them and say, well, now what do you want me to do? Um, how do you want to handle things? They were unresponsive. Uh, the guy that was in charge of the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program for my region of the state refused to talk to me at all and told me I had to deal with the head of the organization that was in the state's capital. Um, mm. So that was, that was quite, quite the problem. And then um, I had to drive down to uh, the state's capital to meet with this guy. He wouldn't t- talk to me on the phone. And he spent about 10 minutes with me. And at the time, I was told that I had to um, pay them, I think it was $350 a month for their services monitoring me. And I let them know that I was in severe financial distress at the time. I'd gone through a bankruptcy because yeah. not being able to practice for a while. Um, and I, offered, I made him an offer. Yeah. I made him an offer, and I said, listen, you know, you know I'm, a, I'm a mental health professional as well. Uh, there are other approaches to this problem, and I specifically mentioned Smart Recovery, which actually was uh, whose headquarters are in my state, and in mm-hmm. the, close to the city I lived in, actually. And mm-hmm. uh, I offered uh, the head of OLAP, um, in lieu of paying 350 a month, that I would assist them in setting up and, and having um, smart meetings uh, that were uh, available for lawyers. And he, his immediate response was uh, leaning back in his chair with his head behind his head was, we're not interested. Not the end of that. So um, I chased them around for a year or so, and uh, I got through my uh, my period of uh, what I thought was probation. And then about a year later, a motion to show cause was filed with the Ohio Supreme Court. Basically, the the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program 
tried to have my license taken away again, arguing that I had not been cooperative. Um, another $20,000 in responding to it, and it was uh, denied by the Supreme Court unanimously. So that was the beginning of my exposure uh, <laughs> to, the, to the steps and the issue of coercion. Uh, now, this same problem exists for most professionals. Uh, every healthcare profession, I mean, nurses uh, are faced with it, pharmacists are faced with it, doctors uh, through the physician health programs. Uh, and what I didn't know until recently, in part because I got to know you and your connection mm-hmm. to the pilots, is this entire uh, scheme started with the HIMSS program um, in the, was it the early 70s. Yeah. So the pilots were really the first victims, <laughs> the longest standing victims of this practice, which has become um, kind of monstrous uh, in its scope and its impact yeah. on people. Um, mm-hmm. An entry into these things, uh, you would think um, that these kinds of interventions would be limited. Let's forget about for a moment what the intervention is, whether it's AA or some other intervention, would be limited to people who meet the diagnostic criteria for these conditions, either alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. Well, what we see, uh, particularly in the case of pilots and physicians, is something that's much more draconian. Uh, and any event, any, any number of events can cause you to go down this rabbit hole, including things like a single off-duty DUI. Mm-hmm. Now, not to suggest that anybody should drive while intoxicated, but the fact that you had a DUI does not in and of itself qualify you for a diagnosis, diagnosis right. of alcohol use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is, in the case of these pilots, is, a single DUI, uh, you and I both know a pilot who got into a verbal altercation with a security person at a hotel where he was staying. He got, uh-huh. he got reported to the airline and a copy of a bar bill was sent in. Uh-huh. We've, we've heard about pilots whose um, estranged spouses have uh-huh. reported that they're drinking too much. Uh, any uh-huh. number of them. The once, roommate, once what, the one guy, is made. Yeah, the yeah, one guy was, uh, one of the first pilots uh, was shared an apartment in New York City uh, and one of the pilots who was a stepper, I guess, who was there, uh, thought that he drank too much on his own time and reported him. Yeah. Well, that began. A yeah. nurse in the middle of the country uh, was telling uh, uh, another nurse on the job how, you know, about her, what happened in her relationship uh, with her husband, and she was so sad and that she thought maybe she was drinking a little too much at home. She got reported. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. very sober woman, and she said she had to sit in meetings with doctors and nurses who had done like really criminal stuff in the meetings that yes. she had to then go and sit with these uh, awful people. Um, thank God for coronavirus mm-hmm. and now people don't have to drive to these meetings and yes. sit in these meetings anymore. Yes. Um, yeah, I know. mean, one more story about another pilot whose, whose story we've both been told. Um, he, 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 was have, he had an anxiety issue, uh, a bit of an anxiety disorder, and he reported to a physician that a year earlier, he had gone through a period of time where he used alcohol to self-medicate for his anxiety, but he hadn't done it for a year. Uh, he got reported <laughs> and, and involved in him. Uh, I mean, so it's not just the fact that, the, that uh, any number of incidents can get you into this jackpot, but the manner in which um, these people are treated once that referral is made is, is of real concern. So uh, what, what you see is almost invariably, almost without exception, any pilot who's referred to the HIMSS program 
the intervention starts with an inpatient, a 28-day inpatient admission. Um, so you have a, a group of treatment facilities, uh, all of whom are 12-step oriented, all of which I should say are 12-step oriented, who profit from, much in the way body brokers profit from the sort of rehab merry-go-round, uh, by a large volume of professionals who are forced uh, to go to their treatment programs as the beginning of their nightmare. Um, the same thing holds true for physicians uh, and PHPs. Generally speaking, uh, they are required once, uh, I think it starts actually with a, with a so-called assessment, uh, and the assessment results in a, the slapping on of a diagnosis of alcohol or substance use disorder, thereby justifying a 28-day inpatient stay. Uh, and uh, oftentimes, and I've talked to a number of people who've gone down this rabbit hole, uh, fortunately I didn't get forced into a treatment facility, uh, where they sit around and they are seeing and are exposed to people with really serious issues, uh, not, not just serious diagnosable alcohol and substance use disorders, but also any number of coexisting problems. So there they are, uh, maybe sometimes not having had a drink already for a year, and they're spending 28 days in the treatment facility, um, often at their expense, but certainly um, somebody's paying for uh, some clearly unnecessary treatment. Um, now, that's bad, but um, worse than that is that for these pilots, they lose their ticket to fly. You know, their medical clearance is gone during this period of time. Uh, and then uh, it's not over after 28 days because then starts the 90 and 90 and the participate, forced participation in 12-step groups on and on and on. Now, there's, there's two things that happen. There's certainly a group of people who um, recognize that there's something rotten in Denmark uh, and have problems with it, but they're forced to talk the talk, at least, uh, right. unless they're dumb like me and push back. Uh, and they get them stuck. <laughs> they have to wind up, uh, they wind up uh, stuck in this nightmare. Now, yeah. some percentage of these people, and this is something I saw when I started going to meetings, if somebody tells you you got to go to 90 AA meetings in 90 days and the like, and you spent 28 days in an inpatient program, whether you've got a problem or not, a large number of people are going to wind up drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, they buy into it. They become devotees. They become committed to the steps. Mm-hmm. And, and people who, who aren't familiar with what 12-step what treatment and AA meetings are all about, um, built into the system, baked into it, since uh, Bill Wilson wrote the big book, is uh, an evangelical component, you know, yep. taking the message to others. I mean, you know this better than I do, Monica, because you spent a lot more time in the rooms than I did. But um, your recovery depends on you carrying this message. So what's, what's really insidious about all this is that these kinds of treatment programs, whether it's HIMSS or physician health programs or the higher lawyers assistance program, they are, mon- they are administered by steppers, people who have become committed to all the things that are in the big books of Alcoholic Anonymous and 12-step treatment in general. So I, I, I still remember um, the sort of glassy-eyed um, head of OLAP in my region who carried around this dog-eared copy of the big book, you know, clutched in his hand. And uh, if you talk to a guy, what you got was a whole bunch of AA slogans, not much else. Uh, and he certainly didn't want to hear about any other approach uh, or that you didn't really have 
uh, an addiction issue or you weren't really an alcoholic. They don't want to hear any of that. Um, so it's a, it's a trap. And the consequences are staggering, um, especially for, for those people who lose the ability to practice their profession as a consequence of getting caught in this nonsense. And it doesn't end there either, uh, because as I've learned, and this applies mostly to the pilots and MDs, um, monitoring includes um, alcohol biomarker testing, which is, has become sort of a cottage industry. And these are uh, tests, um, the most recent one's called a PEF test, you're subject to being tested at any time and for any reason. And if one of these tests, which is allegedly supposed to tell whether you've been drinking um, in the past several days or weeks, um, if one of them comes back positive, your nightmare begins again. Uh, no matter what you say, and it's clear, the evidence is out there, that the, there's, first of all, the FDA never approved this testing for uh, 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 certainly for a forensic use, which is how it's being used. There's no clinical utility. And it's clear that there are a large number of false positives. So, you know, you and I both talked to pilots who've gotten caught in that mess as well. Yep. So between the, between the uh, inappropriate treatment, the misdiagnoses, the uh, unwarranted and intrusive monitoring, the loss of the ability to, you know, to practice your profession, these are serious problems. So, the question becomes, what can be done about it? Well, what can be done about it is the, the law. The law provides us with some remedies, um, which as of yet have not been applied very strongly, except in the context of people who are on parole or probation. There are a large number of federal court decisions that have examined the question of whether compelling somebody to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step meetings constitutes a First Amendment violation, which for those who recall your constitution, include them on other things, the separation of church and state and prevents governments from promoting religion. So if there's state action involved, as is the case with um, parolees and probationers who are ordered as a condition of the parole or probation to attend these meetings, there is um, a clear established violation of the First Amendment. And there have been, I think, around in the neighborhood of 20 federal court decisions holding exactly that. Um, now, all that's occurred as a result of it thus far is that law has been used so that these particular parolees or probationers are given a pass on attending these meetings. Um, but there's more that can and should be done, and that's what I'm trying to get accomplished now is, uh, is I'm right off into the sunset in my legal career. So part of the reason I was anxious to uh, appear on the show with you is that uh, I wanted to See who else is listening out there. Any lawyers, particularly those with class action or constitutional law experience, um, I invite you to get involved in this process because there are literally thousands, thousands of, if you just limit it to MDs and pilots who mm -hmm. have been negatively impacted by this practice and, uh, and deserve uh, justice. Uh, this mm -hmm. is inappropriate. It shouldn't continue. It needs to stop. Um, and I will tell you, and I don't think, I wonder if you disagree with me, Monica, I would venture a guess, not that I've actually done the head count, but if you were to walk into any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the country or any meeting, um, I would be willing to bet you that it, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% or more of the people sitting in those chairs are there because either their professional group or the court has ordered them to sit in those chairs. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. Yeah. 
You know, it, it it is a problem. I want to thank you for you know being with me today, everybody out there. This is Larry, and uh, he's an attorney, and he is helping a group of pilots as uh, I am rallying them. And if you want to get in touch with me, I have a leaving AA. It's just leavingaa.com website. If you uh, click on the links there of how to contact me, you can also contact me through this Blog Talk Radio or through Facebook. I am on Facebook and Twitter. And I have, you know, straight up, uh, you know, uh, message me there. So, um, Larry, is there? A, do you have an email that you could give out? Well, <laughs> no, not yet. Okay. Identify. That would kind of identify me. What, what okay, I, no, what, no, what no, I would prefer no it's fine. It's it's fine. We don't uh, have to do that it, today. They can get to me and then get to you. Uh, so it's exactly. really, it's so. Uh, punitive to uh, the other thing that uh, when you brought up just this number of people like if you went to a meeting how many people were forced there especially meetings that are held in clubhouses and um, co-ed meetings still you're going to see so the facts that seem to come through say that's lower like even people who are journalists and stuff they say you know oh it's 10 15 percent but the AA board member that I interviewed who left the board uh, at the time when I wrote the letters and all this stuff was coming down in 2000, I think it was 10, um, he said that it's 50, 60 percent are coerced, not 10 and 15. Yeah, I, I think that, that sounds about right. Yeah, you know, and I, I believe I feel, too, I, now that what I know, like, look, if you go to a meeting yes. and there's only 15 people there, and then right before 8 o'clock, a bus pulls up, a white van, and there's 15 more people that get added to the meeting. <laughs> Come on. Uh, that's what I saw happen to a huge meeting, the Rodeo meeting, that got destroyed. Um, 300 people used to go to that, and I went back to see what was going on there, and that's what happened. Uh, I just well, think that th- this whole thing with the pilots – oh, I know what I want to ask you. When you're talking about OLAP, and um, I'm, I know this yeah. about hymns. So OLAP, everybody who works for OLAP, um, I'm on the website, right, and I put up uh, our team. You click on it, and this, mm-hmm. oh, wait, wait, something did finally come up. Are they all just steppers, and it's, it's a non-paying, yes. non-paying job, so they're uh, all? No, 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 no. The no. Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program has a million-dollar-plus-a-year budget. Uh, every Whoa. lawyer's uh, dues uh, for continued licensure, a, por- a portion of those dues go to the Ohio Lawyers Assistance Program, and the Supreme Court of Ohio uh, provides additional funding. So it, it's, no, it's not voluntary at all. Now, in terms of the credentials, um, the, 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 the head people there uh, have some kind of uh, KDAC generally that they picked up at some community college or God knows where, uh, but mostly they're steppers. Mostly they're people that have been devotees of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for years and years and years, and, and wow. they don't want to hear about any other options, and, uh, and, that, and that's the case. And, and it varies from state to state. Um, I know when I was out in California, I, I uh, attended one of the, the local lap meetings there, and it was pretty much the same thing. Um, yeah. In, in LA, in LA, they have more meetings that are just lawyers only that have been organized for the purpose of lawyers, um, and those are kind of they're the same as anything else. I mean, you, you hear the same slogans, and it's they're just twelve-step meetings. It's Did you go there, there just to check things purpose. out? Did you just yeah. go to see what yeah. was going on, like sort of investigating, yeah. see what was happening? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I went was to that check the last... things out. Uh, 
when, when you were here? The last AA meeting I was at? Uh, yeah, well, it was, uh, I've been in L.A. two different times, but, uh, okay. yeah, it was during that period of time. And, and I'll say that there's differences regionally since I spent some time in California. The, the, way, the way the meetings are, are, are done in California is a little, a little different than Ohio in the sense that every meeting starts out with a reading from, of how it works, uh, which is one of the worst things I've ever read in my life. Rarely have you seen a person say a little further. Larry, Larry in yeah, California. That's an L.A. thing. That's an L.A. thing. But, like, you know, everywhere, there's a lot of hand-holding and a lot of praying, which was off-putting to me. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I, uh, let me say this about, about faith and spirituality uh, as it applies to addictions. I have, I have no problem when, when that's out front. Uh, for example, there are, uh, there's a very, um, there's a faith-based program in Los Angeles called Beit Yeshiva. It's, it's Jewish, Jewish rehab. Now, mm-hmm. if you know you're going to a place <laughs> that's faith-based, uh, mm-hmm. then you've made a choice. And, and I don't have a problem with that. Uh, you know, I'd rather they found some other uh, theology other than the 12 steps to integrate with Jewish rehab or Christian rehab or any kind of rehab. But at least when you've got these faith-based programs where it's explicit, there's a religious organization behind it, you've got truth in advertising. People know what they're getting. But the bait and switch that goes on in regular AA is, is really disturbing, frankly. This, this notion that it's spiritual and not religious and, you know, the substitution of higher power for God. Um, at the end of the day, uh, if you're not on your knees praying, now your sponsor's not happy with you. You know, Larry, one of the things that I found really disturbing about um, current AA members, even Al-Anon members that are there a long time, is when I would tell them, uh, when I discovered it about the the coercion and how deep it was, and how archaic, they would say, oh, no, you know, you can't do that. Like, everybody has to come to AA who wants to come, and we have traditions. And I was like, can you, like, stop it? Like, the fact is, is they are sent, they've been sent since the 1970s, and their lives are destroyed because of it, right? And they're like, no, that can't happen. And that is one of the fights that I do think is really important to get to the word of AA members is that, listen, you are living in a dream world about what AA is and what it is in yes. the real world. I mean, if you look on the tax return, uh, when we all first saw the tax return, and by the way, if you're listening, you just go to ProPublica's website, which is a nonprofit, fantastic news agency. It's an online uh, newspaper, investigative reporting, and many of the people are you know, just with some of the best over there um, out of the East Coast. And you can put in any nonprofit, and you'll see the millions that Alcoholics Anonymous brings in um, by people putting in their dollar and their five dollars, and uh, you know, then they send a certain percentage off to New York, and really, a lot of their money. And I heard, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I don't want to bother to go that deep, but that most of it really comes from the sale of literature because they're selling it to rehab. Yes. And if they're not yeah. giving it to rehab, they're selling it no. to the Betty Ford and to Hazelton. Hazelton has hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, which saved mm-hmm. Betty Ford, which was going under. That's another story. But, you know, it's really uh, like if we had one of the I, – I know there's some pilots out there listening. Hi, guys, uh, that <laughs> I've gotten to know really well. Some of them have had a negative uh, false 
puff test, as you were talking mm-hmm. about, that got them, you know, going down the road again. Somebody was sent to, Scott was sent to rehab 14 months sober, you know, and yes. people thought he was a counselor. He shit was so together. And, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, they were me, like, what are you doing let here? Let me say one more thing. I yep. have to say one more thing about alcohol and, and the HIMSS program. And the the problem I have with the only only appropriate and acceptable endpoint for this intervention is sobriety. Now, I'm not sure where that – well, I know where that's coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's an issue for the whole harm reduction community. Uh, right. That's not the only reasonable endpoint. And particularly when you're talking about somebody's entry into the system came from a single night of too much drinking. Right. Uh, yeah. on, on what planet is it necessary for that person to be abstinent for the rest of their professional life? Yep. Does that make any sense at all? It makes none to me. Uh, but, and yet that's the case. So when you get into this jackpot, however it happens, you lose your right to ever drink alcohol again as long as you practice your profession. Yeah, it's horrible. Hey, listen, what I, you know what? Another crazy wrong. thing? No, it's true. Uh, with the coronavirus, no hand sanitizer? Are you yeah. fucking kidding me? Yeah. Everybody needs okay. to be using hand sanitizer. I think I'm going to call hymns about this one. <laughs> call the, the, the Good, luck. Good luck with that. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't think any of this is going to change, and that's why, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm looking for other lawyers to get involved. And of course, you know, I'm, uh, right now I'm working closely with some pilots and physicians as well. But it, it, the problem's not limited to them. Nurses take a real beating um, often uh, with these kinds of programs. So I'm interested in hearing from anybody uh, who, who thinks that they've been damaged as a result of this. Uh, how to proceed on this is an interesting question. Uh, obviously, each profession stands on its own. But the question is, is this a class action or is a bunch of individual claims? Whatever it is, uh, people are entitled uh, to be made whole when they've suffered uh, damage as a result of being coerced and forced into inappropriate treatment uh, that does them no good and has caused them great harm. That's true. And that's my speech. <laughs> it was good. It's, it's so good to have an attorney who, sorry to say, was coerced there, right, and that you had to go yep. through what you did. But I always felt that it would take <laughs> somebody like you to help this uh, movement and um, I think we finally have a name for it. It's called Demand Choice. And I think that yeah. um, Becca and I talked about changing the name of our um, new film from Rehab Riot to Demand Choice. Because really, ah, no, what are we fighting good. for? You know what I mean? What is it that yes. we want? And it's choice. And you cannot any longer, you know, and, and, and Hollywood just continues. And not only Hollywood, but mainstream. No, Let's talk about this for the last... What do we have? I just put 45 minutes in for us. So we have, you know, I don't know, whatever, seven minutes. But like with this whole coronavirus and everybody going on Zoom, you know, you and I are both seeing all over our Facebook groups um, about, you know, the New York Times and the Post Mm -hmm. and now CNN of like, uh, Mm -hmm. oh, how are the poor AA people doing without their meetings? Uh, Whoopi Goldberg talked about it on The View, right? We're like, guys, like, really? You know, do they not know there's other choices? Smart recovery, there's yeah. harm reduction, there's medically assisted treatment. There's actually some really wonderful programs that women, a couple of women have started that are uh, coaching. Uh, I mean, if you're going to promote AA, which are a bunch of like, okay, let's say 
loser drunks and star drunks and successful writing drunks and successful journalists. Okay, they're all in AA and they're all like tooting each other's horn. Well, then why not even promote people who uh, are also, they don't have credentials and some of them do, but they're, they have programs that are now working for people who don't like AA and no yes. one has ever really felt supported that they can, you know, criticize AA like it's some sort of like holy grail, even above the Catholic Church now, because the Catholic Church has got its ass kicked. Of course. Right. right. But now AA needs to get its ass kicked, I think. And well, I'm really me, sick of it. Let me comment on that a little bit. If I could put another plug in, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> on, the subject, on the subject of what the coronavirus means and alternatives to uh, bricks and mortar. 28-day treatment programs. Um, you asked me, you, asked, you apologized. You said you said you were sorry I went through this. There's a Yiddish word called beshert. It's, sort of meant, it's meant to be, which uh, kind of how I feel about all this. Uh, because uh, of my background and all my experiences, first of all, it caused me to take a look back again at how we can help people with chronic pain problems that are opioid dependent. That was one thing I was doing. And as a result of that, I'm, I'm involved with trying to get off the ground a solution to an addiction to addictions treatment that doesn't involve bricks and mortar, uh, mm-hmm. a remarkable uh, manner of detoxing people from both opioids and alcohol that can be done in people's homes, uh, um, augmented reality and telehealth and other interventions that don't require people to sit in a room holding hands, saying mm-hmm. prayers uh, in church basements, or being warehoused for detoxification uh, and 28 days of often unnecessary and inappropriate treatment. So if anybody wants to know about that as well, we have to, we have to get some investment in this. Uh, I think I'm, I feel quite strongly that this is the way things are moving. There are more and more programs that are now set up with apps uh, and, and other um, technology uh, that will give people ways to get help uh, without having to sit in a room and pray. Yep, really good point. Uh, well, I want to thank you. I, you know, maybe let's do another show together where sure. then we have the pilots call in or a nurse or a doctor. We could have it so that people know that we're going to take some calls and then we can answer them or they can vent their feelings. Like uh, I'm just actually looking here um, in one of the Facebook groups. Oh, let me just do a plug for some of the groups. Okay, well, we'll have four more minutes sure. left. So I have, if you don't know this, I have a film that's called The 13th Step. It's where exposed Alcoholics Anonymous and the court ordering of violence and sex offenders to AA. And um, through that, my disdain for it. <laughs> and uh, that is on uh, Vimeo for $1.99 to rent, and it's on Amazon Prime for free, and it's on Tubi for free. Then I have um, some numerous Facebook groups. So Leaving AA, simple, and then Deprogramming from AA or any 12-step group. And you do have to answer the questions. I have the 13-step film group. I have Say No to DUI group for extortion of pilots, nurses, and doctors group. Let's see what else I have. Um, There are some really hardcore groups where no promoting at all. I have a Make AA Safer group. I have a Pro AA versus A Critical so that people can actually argue about it. I have an Addiction Recovery Reform uh, rehab and sober living group, but the really active ones are leaving AA and um, exposing it and deprogramming. And if you want to join, you know, please find me on Facebook and follow me. I want to ask this one other thing, which I didn't do for years. So on Blog Talk Radio, if you like my show, um, please follow the show. Follow me on Facebook and in Twitter. Um, well, let me let me just say that I think we have a couple minutes left. But I think that, uh, the, uh, with regard to those Facebook groups, they are an invaluable resource. And I remember 
when I was feeling uncomfortable, and I, you know, I, I had a, I had a background that allowed me to feel pretty good about the questions that was happening. But I was thinking about all these people that are out there uncomfortable in these meetings and not knowing that there's something else out there or whether or not their feelings are shared by others. And back then, and this is 12 years ago, there were Yahoo groups, and I found a bunch of them, and they were invaluable for me to read mm. others who, do, who stumble on these groups and start sharing their feelings after having been in these rooms and meetings for 12 or 15 years and having such difficulty disengaging that there was, there was support out there for them. And, and the Facebook, your Facebook groups and others serve that purpose, and they're very important. I encourage everybody to get involved in them. Wow, wow. I want to read this really quick. So somebody in the group, uh, one of the groups just wrote this. You know what pisses me off more than AA, the justice system? I am on an interlock device in my car from 2012 offense. The hearing officer got the law wrong and is demanding I keep this thing in for five years. Oh, my my God. God. So much for checks and balances, right, and there's no recourse. He's the only person to decide my fate when it comes to privilege. So this is something else. And this is really bad. Uh, anyway, please, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Larry, it was great. As always, uh, we'll do another show. Yes. And everybody out there in Blog Talk Radio land, uh, hang in through these uh, strange, strange times. And um, I guess we're going to try to make the best use of it, right? <laughs> what are we going to do, right. Larry? All right. All Thanks right. so much, Larry. Thank we'll talk to you much. later, right, and I want to thank you, everybody, for listening, and see you all again next week in Blog Talk Radio Land. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night.